following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Senior Pastor Senior Pastor N. Eric Nielsen. Also this morning, I got a message from my oldest son in Barcelona as he was at the boarding gate that he was about to board in 30 minutes. He was on his way home, praise the Lord. But I had to trust, and so did he, and so did a hundred other passengers, they had to trust in the aircraft manufacturing process, didn't they? They had to have faith that the maintenance crew's training was done well. We had to have faith in the pilot training and the certification. We had to believe that the navigational technology of today and the traffic controllers along the way were trustworthy, didn't we? When I commuted on the train and on my way to church, I had to trust that the signal systems and the sequences and all of the electrical circuits were all working properly. I had to trust in the mechanical and the electrical de dependability. So just coming to church today, every one of you have exercised some type of faith, haven't you? You believed that God would show up, didn't you? Or else you wouldn't be here. You believed that others would show up. You believed that there would be worship team and a preacher here, and that the seats you're sitting in would hold you up or you wouldn't have sat down, and that this building was constructed properly even though it was constructed in the 1800s. All of us, every day, we live by faith. And those who say, I only live by what I can see and I only trust science, well, that's hogwash because they live by faith in the things that they do not see every day. Every activity we engage in, every decision we make, we factor in a whole lot of information, a lot of details, assumptions, and risks all in a split second as we make our decisions. Now, sometimes our information is incorrect, right? Sometimes our assumptions are wrong. Sometimes our evaluation of risk is naive. And usually, when we factor in the wrong information, it's not that significant. But sometimes, as we know, it can be fatal. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time, because no manufacturing process is perfect, no distribution chain is impeccable, no certification is tamper-proof, no human being or anything created or invented by human beings can be absolutely perfect, right? There's always the possibility that something could go wrong when we place our trust in human beings or the processes that human beings are in charge of. Now, the question for us today is how often do we express our faith in the living God? How often does that happen when we factor him in to the decisions that we make every day? Do we factor in the fact that he is present with us all the time, especially in that moment when we're tempted to sin? Do we factor in the fact that he has power over disease when we're lying sick in the hospital? Do we factor in his ability to transform our desires as we struggle against habits or his supernatural ability to cure blindness and make an aging couple conceive a child? Do we factor him in? Do we, that the fact that he cares for us and he lovingly attends to us as we face our anxieties of what tomorrow may hold? See, there was a very significant occasion in the history of the Israelites that we're going to look at today when they failed 
to factor in God. They were at the doorstep of a promise that God was about to fulfill, ready to enter the land that He had promised their forefathers, and they, for, they failed to factor in God, to exercise and live by faith in His power and in His strength. And the Bible is a wonderfully historic book. We see some of our heroes failing in miserable ways. It's one of the signs of its authenticity, that there are heroes that we should admire, and yet they're shown to be weak and incapable, fleshly and drunk and murderous. Think of Noah, Abraham, Samson, David, Peter. You know, even when we read about God in the Scriptures, sometimes what He says and what He does, we're still there scratching our heads. Wow! God would say that. He would do that. And the book of Numbers contains these details of so many of Israel's failures along their journey out of Egypt. And for us today, people of the New Testament, as we saw last week, we are supposed to learn from their failures. I hope you were here last week. You learned a lesson from their grumbling and complaining. And today, a major failure that led to God's decision to start over with a new generation. So I'm hoping that you came here uh, trusting that you would receive a message that would hopefully change the way you look at life even today. Today, we're first going to take a closer look at that tragedy, that tragedy of Israel's failure, that defining moment that separated an older generation from a new generation. Secondly, we'll look at the events that began to develop for the new generation as they began to grow in faith. And finally, we'll look at how God wants us, you and I, people of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, how does He want us to be like the new generation? So if you're taking notes, in your note sheet for the purpose of Numbers chapter 21 to 36, you can write this, that these chapters are to show how God raised a new generation of Israelites, to show how God raised a new generation of Israelites to learn to trust His faithfulness to learn to trust His faithfulness and enjoy the fulfillment of His promise. To show how God raised a new generation of Israelites to learn to trust His faithfulness and enjoy the fulfillment of His promise. Now, I want to take you first to Numbers chapter 13. You can follow along if you like, but I'm just going to give you a summary of it. I'm assuming that many of you know about this account, but I'm sure that some of you here do not know the details of it. So let me summarize for you the tragedy of Israel's failure in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, because this sets the stage of why God decided to raise up a new generation. So the nation of Israel, as they're journeying out of Egypt, they arrive in the wilderness of Paran, which is on the south, south of the land of Canaan, which they should soon possess. All of this was in fulfillment of God's promise He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they, his, their descendants would dwell in the land. So now God told Moses to send 12 leaders from the 12 tribes to go in and explore the land, to explore its people, to discover its fertility, its vulnerability to attack, and to bring back some of its fruit. So these 12 leaders went into the land, and it took them 40 days to explore and they brought back some of its fruit. A single cluster of grapes had to be carried by two men on a pole between them, and they brought, to, brought back some pomegranates and figs. Now, two kinds of reports came in. The first of them was this. They said, it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. 
but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And then they mentioned all the various peoples in the land. And then there was Caleb. Caleb said, we should go up and, and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Two kinds of reports coming back. The first group of people insisting, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we. The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. The second report from Caleb and Joshua, they were the only two from the explorers who insisted that the people should not be afraid. Now, they didn't deny that the cities were strong and the people were strong. But, and here's the key, they insisted that the Lord would lead them into the land because of His presence with Him. They said, their protection is gone. Do not be afraid of them. Two reports, two different perspectives. And then here's what happens next. All the people raised their voices and wept aloud, and they began complaining to Moses and Aaron. You heard about what happened last time they complained. They decided now to choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. They said, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb. And here's what God says to Moses, revealing to us what the most egregious of their sins were against him. He says this, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? Now that's really telling what God was so offended by. They expressed contempt. It means despise or provoking him. They treated him disrespectfully. They disregarded all of the miraculous signs that he had already performed among them. And those should have been convincing enough. It should have been ample proof of his ability over nature, over armies, over leaders. And we realize that their lack of faith was not simply a passive disbelief. It was an act of refusing to believe. After all that they had experienced, they should have factored in his greatness, his ability, his promise, his faithfulness, his power, and his protection against enemy, any enemy. And that kind of respect the Lord deserves. The kind of respect that acknowledges his person and his character, which is nothing short of all-powerful, nothing short of being unwavering in, un in faithfulness. So the Lord reveals to Moses what he's ready to do. He says, I'm going to strike down with a plague and destroy them but I will make you a nation greater and stronger than they. Surprise anyone? Well, Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel, and long story short, God forgives them of their rebellion. Moses appeals to God based on God's own reputation. He appeals to him on God's own character. He says, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Moses demonstrated he knew and understood God's character. And the Lord forgave them, but the consequence of the rebellion was that they would not see the promise fulfilled. The consequence was that everyone 20 years and older would not last 40 more years in the wilderness. They would all die. And anyone 20 years or younger would survive the wilderness and be led in by the Lord into the land that he had promised them. 
<clears throat> he says, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you rejected. Joshua and Caleb, they were the only two who were above 20 who actually went in to see the promised land. The rest, they died over the course of the next 40 years until this new generation of Israelites would mature and be ready to enter the promised land. I remember a couple of years ago at our men's conference in Lenk when the speaker referred to just this incident. He said, wouldn't you hate to be that last Israelite alive? Every day people would look at you and say, haven't you died yet? We're ready to go in. I wish you would just die. Imagine being that last person alive from that old generation. Well, sadly, as God began to build a new generation, that old generation was still around for those 40 years. And there were a couple of more rebellions and some more grumbling and complaining. And then when there was no water, they grumbled again, saying, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? And Moses was instructed to speak to the rock to bring out water, and instead he struck it twice. And Moses, too, suffered the consequence of not having trusted the Lord. Because you did not trust me, God says, enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. See, Moses was a great man of God, yet humble, certainly not perfect, but after all that struggle with the nation that he had survived through, even he didn't get to see the land promised to the Israelites. But this new generation, this new generation, they grew up on manna. They learned to feed on the food that the Lord had provided. This new generation, they didn't have so many memories of life in Egypt to go back to. They knew the wilderness, and they knew God's presence right there in the middle of the camp for all those years. This new generation experienced God's sovereign protection over many nations. And as you, as you follow along their wanderings, there were many armies that, that uh, sent up their forces against them. There were the Edomites that first refused to let them go through their territory. They simply avoided their territory. The Canaanite king of Arad. The Lord gave the Canaanites over to them, and it says they completely destroyed them and their towns. So imagine how this is building the faith that they need in order to capture, to take uh, possession of the land of Canaan. There was Sihon, king of the Amorites. He sent his army against the Israelites. Israel, however, it says, put him to the sword and took over his land, and Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them. There was Og, the king of Bashan, he sent his whole army against the Israelites. But the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you. And they struck him down, together with his sons and the whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. And then there was Balak and his Moabites. They had seen what had happened. And here's the part that we're going to read from the Scriptures. Because when Balak saw... All of those Israelites, he was filled with dread because of them. And he got the Midianites together, and then he employed a soothsayer, a prophet, to come and pronounce a curse over Israel. In Numbers chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, you'll see the curse, quote-unquote, that Balaam, the one hired to curse them, had pronounced on Israel. This was the third attempt because each time Balaam wanted to open his mouth to curse the Israelites, God prevented him from cursing them. 
And in Numbers chapter 24, you, hear, you see what he actually said. Beginning chapter 24, verse 1, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. And when Balaam looked out and saw Israel camped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the one whose eye sees clearly. The oracle of the one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, and their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. So Balak's plan didn't work quite so well because Balaam would only bless Israel. As he saw their tents and all those people prospering because God was with them. And before Balaam goes home, he gives another oracle of blessing, predicting that the Amalekites, the Kenites, they too would not be able to stand against the Israelites. So all along the way, I want you to see, friends, that this new generation had opportunities to experience God's power and his protection. And they also had an opportunity to see his power to heal. There was a time when the older generation again began to speak against God. The Lord sent venomous snakes. And how, was, how were they to be healed? He said to Moses, place a snake upon a, 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 place a bronze snake upon a pole. And he says, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he would live. This was that very snake of which Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And here is the lesson from the wilderness. Yes, you can read all the way through the book of Numbers, if you like, and I hope you do, to, to read all of the details of these accounts. But the lesson is quite simple. Believe, and you will live. Refuse to believe, and you will die. So it is essentially to live a life of faith in God. And the Israelites got a foretaste of how invincible they were when the Lord was protecting them, when the Lord was fighting their battles for them. So when they would enter the promised land, they had every confidence because they had seen with their own eyes the many peoples who had fallen before them. And as it nears the, book, the end of the book, there's still two more things that are recorded that I believe are worth mentioning. The first of these is that there were five girls five daughters of Zelophehad. Try to say Zelophehad five times really quickly. These five daughters did not have a brother, which meant in the laws of the land at that time, they would inherit nothing. And they brought their case to Moses because they were afraid that in the promised land they would receive no inheritance. And the Lord says to Moses about their case, if a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. So it was contrary to the, the laws of those times, but it shows us that Israel was different, that God was concerned about the women. But here's the other remarkable thing. Why would the women 
come to Moses unless they believed that there was going to be an inheritance for them. See, they believed what God had promised about having the land. They stood to lose an inheritance, so they wanted to make sure they got it. And their faith that God was going to bring them into the promised land is exactly the faith that their father had lacked. Then comes the second event. There were two tribes, Reuben and Gad. They had lots of flocks, and they said, well, you know what? This eastern side of the Jordan looks great. We'll just possess this part of the land. And Moses said, whoa, wait a minute. Don't be like your fathers who all died because of their refusal to enter the land. But no, in fact, they were ready to go into the land and ensure that all of their other tribes would receive it. It's just that the men would leave their herds and flocks and their wives and their children on the eastern side of the Jordan while they helped the other tribes fight and take possession of all the land on the western side of the Jordan. And then they would return to their families and their children. Friends, that is faith. That's faith knowing that God will do the protecting while all of our military men are away from home. That's the faith that the older generation lacked. So you and I today, as part of the New Covenant, God wants us to be like the new generation that lives by faith in Him. That's the message for today. Because life in Christ is, after all, a journey of faith through this world into an eternal home that He has promised for us. The Apostle Paul, remember, encouraging the Corinthians to avoid the mistakes that Israel made, specifically mentioning some of the things that they had failed in, the cravings, the grumbling, the sexual immorality, and he warned, these are warnings for us. But he encouraged them, no temptation, which can also be translated as testing or trial, has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested or tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted or tested or tried, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know enough about the life of Paul, I assume. He went through plenty of testing and temptation and trial. And yet, how did he make it through that? Though he was hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is temporary, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And friends, I believe that's the key. That's where you and I, just like Paul, must live by faith, fixing our eyes not on what is seen because it's temporary, but on that which is unseen. So when we are hard-pressed on every side, we are not crushed. If we are ever perplexed, we would not be in despair. If we're ever persecuted, we know we are not abandoned. And if we are ever struck down, we know that we are not destroyed. So when you look at the Apostle Paul, there's at least three keys to his abilities. You can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in fact. I would encourage you to, to turn there. Three things for us to apply as we face our temptations or trials and tests. As we go through the wilderness of this journey, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
He says in verse 18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. So he chose to fix his eyes on that which is unseen because those things which are seen are only temporary. And you and I, despite the fact that our trials may be unpleasant, may be prolonged, we have to believe that they cannot compare to the ever-increasing glory that is coming from the Lord. Someone has once said, God sends trials not to impair us, but to improve us. The trials God sends are to draw us closer to them, to Him. They reveal to us His character, His power, and His faithfulness. And we have to believe that in that process, God is transforming our inner person into Christ's likeness. So as we fix our eyes on the temporary, then it makes the difficulty seem meaningless. If we fix our eyes on the eternal, then we'll realize that God is working in us the ever-increasing glory which comes from Him who is the Spirit. Secondly, if you look on in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Again, Paul has his eyes, not on the here and now, but on the eternal. He knew that God was making a home for us in heaven. And whatever painful experiences his body may endure in this life, we might grow tired, we might grow weary. We have to believe that we will receive a new body one day that will be our eternal home. Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we would be the most pitiable among men because our faith would be futile. But our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence of faith that we believe Jesus lived and died, was buried, and he was raised from the grave. So you and I, we have to believe God's promise to raise us again from the dead with Christ in the last day. Not only do we know that he's transforming us into the image of his son, we also know that there is a new body awaiting for us in heaven one day. And thirdly, Paul understood that he had to please the Lord whether here or in eternity. He says, we're, all, we're confident in verse 6, we're always confident and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Temptations are opportunities for us to choose the fulfillment of fleshly desires or the fulfillment of of spiritual desires. It may be difficult for us to wait on the Lord's timing. It may be unpleasant for us to be obedient. But we have to believe that God is paying attention and that He cares about the decision and the choices we make. We have to believe that He is concerned about our eternity and 
are present. And for us, we recognize that one day we will be judged by our actions and we'll have to meet the Lord and confess to Him what we've done. We have been duly warned that the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction, and the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So friends, you and I must be like that new generation. We live by faith, not by sight. We believe this is a journey through a temporary wilderness toward a home that is eternal, just like the Israelites had. We believe that any pain, any trial or test, temptation in this journey is not only temporary, but it is achieving God's purposes for us, and it will be overshadowed by the glory that is to come. And we believe that our faith and obedience is what pleases God, even though we cannot always see His smile. So as I think about faith, and I'll wrap things up here, I believe faith is factoring the Almighty into the equation whatever the occasion. No one's ever heard that said before, right? Factoring God into the equation, whatever the occasion. I think that came from me. I'm not sure. And maybe this math doesn't quite work, but I think of factoring God into a situation like factoring zero into an equation. You know, if you factor one into an equation, you get the same amount, right? Anything times one is itself. But anything times zero will always be zero. So far I'm right, right? (laughs) And I think of factoring God into the equation as factoring a zero into the equation. You factor a human being into the equation, it's just a one. So we come out with the same thing as the equation, but if you factor God into the equation, zero, then everything changes. And God's abilities applied to any situation changes everything. And what may seem impossible for us suddenly becomes possible. Overcoming a sinful habit, finding a Christian mate, surviving a deadly disease, forgiving an enemy, making it through an economic crisis, all of those things which seem to be impossible at times are suddenly made possible. Just like we have factored in so much information and risk about what imperfect human beings have accomplished, you and I need to factor in the Almighty the perfect God into the equation of every occasion. So when we're tempted to commit a sin, let's factor in God's omnipresence and His omniscience. When we're anxious about our future, let's factor in God's care and protection. When we're going through work-related stress, factor in God's Sabbath rest and His ability to provide. When we're trying to make our marriage work, Factor in God's love and His forgiveness and His ability to transform a heart. When we're trying to conceive a child, factor in God's ability, His will, and His timing. When we're struggling against habitual sin, factor in God's Spirit dwelling within us to transform us and renew us and set us free. Now, we don't know what is possible with God unless we've seen what He's done historically. And for that, we can look at the Scriptures. There are good reasons to trust that what is written in the Scriptures is historical. We see His power in creation, His authority over nations, His protection over Israel, His displeasure over sin, His his displeasure over disobedience and lack of faith, and we see His grace and His mercy and His restoration of the repentant. So friends, like the new generation of Israelites, and here's the main idea, like the new generation of Israelites, we must 
be the new generation of God's people who live by faith. You know, as I close, some of you might be thinking it's really unfair that Moses never did get to see the promised land. When all of this time he's been taking them out of Egypt and then he has to die on the mountain overlooking the promised land and never being able to see it. Well, it does seem unfair. But who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, standing in the promised land when the disciples saw Jesus transfigured into light? Who was with him? Elijah and Moses, standing in the promised land. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.